All right, so here we go with part two of Habakkuk. So let us pray, and then we will begin to consider this together. Lord, as we come together again this evening for our study, we are so thankful that we can still meet. Lord, we do not know what tomorrow brings and the challenges, and we do pray for the struggles that are taking place across this nation and the world, just the strength and devastation um, of this virus. God, we pray uh, uh, for much grace and comfort and mercy on uh, those who are suffering and those who um, have lost loved ones. Lord, we pray that you would grant us endurance and that in the midst of all the trials and affliction that we and any face in this world, that we might be among those who uh, remind everyone uh, the afflictions of this present time are, are but a small thing. The wrath of God that will be poured out um, in the final judgment is beyond what any would dare to face or endure. So, Lord, we pray that uh, you might, even in this time, bring many to take stock of their lives, understand their uh, impotence and feebleness, and uh, repent and turn to Christ. We pray that the gospel of Christ and his work on the cross, his death and resurrection would be proclaimed far and wide, and that you would continue to accomplish your work of drawing your sheep to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here this evening and consider a few things out of the book of Habakkuk. Grant me to speak clearly, give your people ears to hear, and give us understanding that we might see much of ourselves in Habakkuk and receive rightly um, the rebuke that comes in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we began last week looking in Habakkuk, and, and we, we took up his early complaint, and after we had seen how his complaint really rose to the, to the degree of challenges against God, we could see his frustration, we could see his, I don't understand what you're doing, and then God answered him. And the way God answered him was basically to unfold for him that what I am doing, you think I'm idle, but I am at work. But the way that I'm at work is not in a way that you would have ever expected, anticipated, or desired. And then he said, told him that he was going to be raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians who were a, a, a brutal, violent, godless, wicked nation. And they were going to come against Israel. And the, the struggle was, God certainly, uh, uh, Habakkuk certainly wanted the wicked of Israel and Judah judged and the righteous exonerated, but then when God says he's bringing these wicked men, these powerful wicked men in, uh, again, what will swell up in him is a reasonable concern that, well, if they come in, won't the righteous also be swept away? And so as we take this up, after God has explained to him, and already had told him, I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if I told you, then God goes on to tell Habakkuk exactly what he's going to do, and Habakkuk does not believe it. Nah, you can't do that. There's no way. And you can hear uh, a confused annoyance in the things that Habakkuk replies. 
uh, I, I call this section or this lesson the hubris of Habakkuk. And, uh, and, and you'll see that later. Hubris basically means excessive pride and self-confidence. He begins really having been told by God how God is going to bring about the, the judgment against the wicked and, and against the vilest, violent by bringing a wicked and violent people against them. And in the process of that, we begin to understand something of the scope of the power of God. Because though, though people like to think each nation has their gods, and Israel and Judah have their God, but this passage again reminds us, even with regard to Chaldeans, Babylonians, the most powerful nation on the earth, who moves them to and fro? Who determines which, which nation they battle, destroy, where and when? We begin to see uh, from this passage, again, it indicates, listen, God that you generally consider the God of Israel actually is the God of the whole world, of the heavens and the earth and the deeps and all that's in it. And, and he is unfolding his particular purposes in bringing judgment upon Israel and Judah. He's unfolding those particular purposes by using whatever tools, whatever instruments he pleases. That God can at any time and whenever he wishes use anyone that he pleases. Even sometimes we're amazed that Caiaphas, who was the high priest in the year that Jesus was crucified, was moved to prophesy that one man should die for the nation. Not at all understanding that in the death of Christ, he would establish for himself a people, a royal nation, a holy people for his own calling. So we begin to see this, and I want to see, after God has told him what he's going to do, we take up in verse 12. And let me read verse from verse 12 down through chapter 2, verse 2, and then we'll dig in together. Are you not from everlasting... O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up a man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net and he gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So this is his challenge to God about using the Chaldeans. And then he says this to God in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch posts. I will stand myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning 
my complaint. And the Lord said to me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he who runs may read it. All right. So now let's go ahead, and, and at the top of our notes, we begin to dig in. What, what, what starts off here in this section is we see that Habakkuk is challenging God. And it really looks like this, his, his approach here is he's challenging God's will by human comprehension. No, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you should do that. I don't think it's the right way. He says this in Habakkuk 1.11. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them as reproof. Now, though it's stated in here in the ter terms of sentences, you know, if I was translating it, it really carries the sense of, of a question. You have established them for reproof. You're going to use them for correction. How can that be that you will use them? It almost smacks of the sense uh, that we see from Abraham. You remember in Genesis 18, 23, when God was purposing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells to Abraham, and, and Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Well, we've got to understand this. God's will and human comprehension and expectation are often going to be at odds. It appears someone's going to the front door. Just judging by shadows passing by. Sorry, that's not a video. <laughs> but what we see here is um, the same kind of... Uh, problem or difficulty that Abraham had, and it's not that difficult if we actually stop and back up and, and think of other passages, because we're all acquainted, and I've mentioned this before, with the book of Job, and we know that Job, God had a purpose in, in, in the process of tremendous affliction that Job would be granted a clearer sight, manifestation, revelation of the sense of, of the scope of God's person, of God's power, of God's might, of God's purposes, all of those things would be shown. And yet, if you step back from that from just a moment and you think, but wait a second, before God taught Job all of those lessons, what happened at the beginning of Job? He had sons and daughters, right? And in order for Job to begin his season of loss, grief, and affliction, it began by the death of all of his sons and daughters on a single day. And again, I would ask you this. What did they do? What did they do that was so wrong, that was so wicked? Satan's desire was that he would uh, really sift and test and challenge the faith of Job. And he was granted permission to do so, but not the power to touch Job himself. So he touched everything that was Job's, and as a result of that, his own kids were lost. And we might think this, that God would allow Satan to, to 
bring to death all the sons of Job in order that Job's faith might be tried and in order that ultimately Job would grow and deepen and strengthen in his full sense of who God is and be humbled before the face of a holy God. Some of us might say, well, that's too great a price. It's not right that in order to humble and reveal himself mightily to Job, these other lost their lives. <laughs> exactly. And so th this is, this is the, the, the reality is, listen, our comprehension at many points, and I say this at, at oftentimes with, in, in the seminary, uh, I'll take them to a place where God will tell to uh, King Saul, you need to go in to the Amalekites, and you need to kill them all, men, women, children, babies, cattle and donkey. And then he says, because when I delivered my people out of Egypt, they did not let them pass through. Well, that's good, but listen, those who did not let them pass through they are dead. Their kids are dead. Their kids are dead and their kids are dead. We are hundreds of years later. There's not a person there among them who didn't them, themselves stopped the Israelites from coming out. And so, listen, to the human heart and mind and our comprehension, we kind of begin to say, well, that God would say kill them for something that they had no part in, no knowledge of. It happened centuries before they were born. It ain't right, we feel, or we say. I asked the students in the seminary in India, how many of you think that what God tells Saul to do in this passage is wrong. And every once in a while, I get a student too. Well, you, you know, but most of them, they, you know, they, they're just looking confused. They're, they're like, I know I can't accuse God of wrong, but I don't understand how it's not wrong. And, and, and that's the issue that we ha have to wrestle with. And listen, brothers and sisters, that's a tension that we just have to live with. His ways aren't ours. His thoughts aren't ours. His judgments are inscrutable. His ways are unsearchable. But listen. The scriptures also that say those things about how ultimately why he does it and his purposes are beyond comprehension also tells us that he does not do wrong. He is upright in all that he does. He will not pervert justice. He will not do wickedly. And our brains can't put those two things together many times. And you know why that is? Because we're mere men. We're creatures. We are the created. He's the creator. You know, and, and when we start to think of it, and if we, if we put things into those more simple perspectives, as the scriptures at times do, as they work their way through the prophets, where he is the potter, we are the clay. 
Look, if, if the potter makes a beautiful pot and then he makes a little bit more roughshod pot and he, and, he, and he takes them both and then he throws down the beautiful one and smashes it and puts some nice flowers in the ugly one, people would, might feel like that's messed up. But doesn't he have a right to do what he wants? It's his. Both of them are his, made by his hands, to do with as he pleases. So who can say to him, what are you doing? There's absolutely no one should question him and challenge him. But Habakkuk struggles with it, and we can understand. We can identify. We just have to be a be. Willing to be those who, humbled by the grace of God, say, I do not comprehend the justice of this at this time or the rightness of this at this time. Although for some of us, the more we work through the scriptures and the more that we see how sin is a despising of God, a, 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 a a hostile act toward God, an act of enmity towards God, and we understand His holiness, sometimes it starts to become a little clearer to some of us along the way. And then we're not so shocked at the judgments that God pours out at times in history because we realize we're amazed at the times He restrains judgment in history. We move from, from those people who are saying, well, I don't understand how Jacob he could love and Esau he hated. I don't understand why he would love one and hate the other of these two brothers. I don't get it. Not right. To, to where, why would he hate Esau is how we start out. And in the process of time... It can happen as we understand sin and we understand the wrath of God and we understand His holiness better. We get on the other side and say, I don't understand how He could love Jacob. How He has seen fit to have mercy on any. But He has. But this question comes up and we're, we're reminded of this. Listen. He first of all speaks, are you not from of everlasting, O God? Speaking of God's eternity, Psalm 90 alludes to that as well and says this, Look, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I like that, from everlasting to everlasting. That's got you an arrow pointing backwards with no beginning. And an arrow pointing forwards with no end. That is God alone. Everyone else has a starting point. Everything in existence, every creature, every object has a starting point except God. And then it goes on to say this, verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. He alone has life existence in himself, and he determines who has life and how long they have life and when that is withdrawn from them in his hands. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And we keep trying to search it out. And, but listen, the only place to search out any measure of right understanding, the fullness, no, but in part, is through what God himself has said. The wisdom of men will leave you in nothing but despair and destruction. Isaiah 57, 15 says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What we see in there is, again, beyond all comprehension. Here is God. High and holy and lifted up, uh, the big word for that theologically is he is a transcendent God. Holy other, which is really the strongest sense of the term holy. Holy speaks not merely of his moral perfections, but his complete otherness and separation and distinction from everything else. And he's called us to be holy as he is holy, that we are to be separate and distinct from the world and the ways of the world and the ambitions of the world and the desires and practices of the world. We are to be holy other. Now, he is holy in absolute perfection at all times. We're in the progress of degree to degree of holiness into his image. But someday the scripture reminds us that when we see him, when we are lifted up, when we are done with this body, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Can you imagine being done with temptation, compromise, weakness, rash words, inappropriately anger responses? distractions, lusts. Can you imagine being done with all greed, covetousness, desire? Done with these things. Doesn't that sound glorious? And, and I think part of the reason we're done with them is because we are made like him and also because we see him. We now see the one who is the treasure of the riches of God, who is of far greater value than all of those other things that men ran after. But he challenges God initially by human comprehension. And it's kind of like this. Uh, I don't, and, and, and this is a danger today, and you're going to meet brothers and sisters who do this, especially if the, you begin to speak to them about God's sovereignty, not only in the world, not only in time, uh, na on nations, not only in crisis and plague and pestilence and difficulty, but when you speak of God's sovereignty with regard to the dispensing of his grace. And the bringing of his sheep into the flock, saving his people from their sins. People are going to rebel against that. That doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem fair. Well, I don't understand why God would create billions and billions of people just to send them to hell. Well, I often say this, even for our, our, our poor dear brothers in Christ who, who have a hyper commitment to man's free will 
they still aren't ultimately denying that God, by his foreknowledge, knows that billions and billions of people that he creates are not going to believe, correct? And still he created the world as it is, sent the gospel as he did with full knowledge that billions and billions of people will end up on the final judgment day cast into the lake of fire. So you don't exonerate God from seeming human sense of wrongdoing by denying the sovereign will and asserting man's free will. You'd end up having to go so far as to deny the omniscience of God. And once you begin to de deny the omniscience of God, I don't know if I can, ever, I can keep calling you brother. <laughs> because your God is not the God of the Bible. You know, if, if you're going to have confusions about men and, and, and misunderstandings and, and maybe uh, overestimate the abilities of men, that is one thing. When you have a different God altogether, that's, there's not a different God. There's not a different gospel. There's not a different Jesus. And so it's not only that, so that you're going to face people who, who have this, and at times you're going to face those circumstances that may come into your life I don't understand why this has gone on. I don't understand why this has happened to me. But we don't need to let bitterness come into our heart in those moments of uncertainty and questions. Uh, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones actually gives a, a, a simple step-by-step -step guide, which I've given a few verses in there, that I think is very helpful. When your comprehension doesn't fit with either what God is unfolding in providence, what's actually happening in our experience, or what the Word of God clearly says, you still trust God. This is the way that uh, the simple points that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave, and I thought they'd be helpful for us to consider. He, he said this, stop to think. Before talking about it, think about it. Don't just let the mouth go. You haven't even heard the whole thing yet. And yet, yeah. now, as I say that, some, most of us are thinking about somebody we know that's kind of like that. But listen, Proverbs says this in Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. <laughs> Again, we want to sit back and stop and think, and, and, and if we stop and think, we end up having this starting point. God is in heaven. He does as he pleases in the heavens, the earth, and in all the deeps. God never does wrong. I can trust him. All right, so now let me move on. To, to how I'm going to wrestle with this issue. That would have been helpful for Job. Would have been helpful for Habakkuk. They had done that. Secondly, he says, restate, like I just did, basic principles. As you think about the problem, don't begin with the problem. Go back further to the basic principles about God 
and his dealings with men. And one of the things that we do see in God and his dealings with men, you can read through it as you read through the book of Romans. As a result of Adam and Adam's disobedience, death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. Condemnation was then passed onto all mankind because of the sin of Adam. Once we understand that and then we look around us and we see people dying, we recognize, well, this is to be expected because all men are rightly condemned in Adam. That God mercifully grants us Days, months, years, decades, sometimes near a century or more, is amazing, his loving kindness and patience. But then we understand, this is what has been passed upon all mankind, and that he is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so we, we begin to recognize, when you start first with God, and his dealings with men, and then you move on, it's not as hard. Again, one of the things that's stirring me a little with a little difficulty during this season is I'm still waiting for people, nations, to start asking themselves, what are we doing wrong? How are we living? We know how fragile life is. We know how fragile global economies are. We know how tenuous everything seems to be. What's after this? What's after this life? And what must I do or know or believe to be ready to face what's after this life? Those questions aren't being asked. I don't see any, any sense of that going on. Yet we should. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and following says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. I just love that simple phrase there. Know that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But don't mistake the rest of what it says about God who is God and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the ones who hate him. He will repay him to his face. These are strong words, aren't they? Such strong words that you're not going to find them in some churches because if you read that, it makes God seem a little harsh. But this is how God saw fit to describe himself. So listen, if God's self-description makes you uncomfortable, and maybe you even go so far as some say, I don't want a God like that. I want a God who is love, love, and nothing but love. That's what I want. Well, listen, 
you don't get what you want. And I don't get what I want. But God is who He is. And we would all do well to listen to the breadth of the scope of what He says He does. We remember in that place where He showed His glory to Moses, put His hand over Him, let Him see His glory from behind. He proclaimed His name, the Lord. He spoke of how He's patient, merciful, slow to anger, full of steadfast love and compassion. Then He went on to say what? But by no means forgiving the wicked. We, need, we must not miss that. So thirdly, Lloyd-Jones says, apply the principles of God and how he deals with man and how he's dealt with man. Think about your problem in light of these basic principles. See, and when I do, I think, when mankind became sinful, utterly sinful, as much of the world seems when I look around. What did God do in the days of Noah? Uh, what, what sort of percentage of mankind did not survive the deluge, did not survive the flood? So, knowing that God has the rights to do that, and indeed, if God had so desired... He did not have to deliver Noah and his family. Isaiah says, look, if, if God was to withdraw his breath to himself, all mankind alike would perish. And he would still not be in the wrong. <laughs> because who has given him a gift that he should be repaid? What does God owe to anyone? Nothing. And so when we look at, at, at how things are going today and we, and we get a little bit nervous as we see, see whatever statistics and numbers and they begin to talk about more and more how many are going to get it and how many are going to die. And it is indeed tragic to see uh, bodies being offloaded out of hospitals in New York. It's heartbreaking to see that and you, and you sense the great agony involved. But were God to pour out his wrath on what mankind deserves, this whole earth would be absolutely demolished. And so we see tremendous mercy even in the midst of this, this, these challenges. It says, lastly, it says this, commit the matter to God in faith, whether you know what to do or not. And I'd go further, whether you know what he's going to do or not. We have no idea if one of, one of us here or one of those that we love is going to end up contracting this and if they're going to or not going to survive this. We have no idea. Now, I have a verse here that says this, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Now listen, I need to help you with this because sometimes that verse is ripped out of the Bible and put onto plaques. Okay? So some people say, okay, he, here's my way. I'm going to start a new business. I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm committing it to you, Lord. So now that I've committed my plan to the Lord, now he has to make it successful. Ha <laughs> ha. Is that, is that how it works? 
No, and that's actually not at all what this says. Uh, this, the, the, the sense of this is it doesn't even carry, the, it, it's not accurately the word commit. The, the word there is the word that is this, roll over to. Okay? You're, right now, you're, on, you're, you're going your way. You're carrying out your plans. You're about yourself. Henceforth, which means from now on. Roll your way over to the Lord. C- commit that your way will be the Lord's way. And He will act. And again, or and He will do this. Do what? In the, in the Hebrew there, uh, uh, the best scholarship available today actually puts a semicolon there. And He will do this, what follows. And what follows is, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers on his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Page five to the top. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't get mad at God because it seems like the wicked guy is succeeding and you trying to be righteous are being destroyed. Fret not yourself. It tends to evil. Wait and trust in the Lord. Don't let yourself get messed up by how things merely look. God is in control and he's going to fulfill his purposes. If you start to stress and then you start to say, God, why aren't you? God, you need to. Then you're just getting ready to start the evil. Don't do it. For the evil evildoers shall be cut off. They will. At some point, all of the wicked and all of the oppressors will stand judgment. At some point, all of the faithful will be vindicated. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. The promises that God has given to us, they will find their full fulfillment. And the judgment that He's declared against His enemies will find their fulfillment. Wait on the Lord. How long? I've said this before. You might have to wait your whole life long. And it may feel like it was a long wait. But in eternity, you'll realize, ah, it was just the blinking of an eye. It was just the flickering of a light. It goes on in just a little while. The wicked will be no more. Again, when we say in just a little while, we remember in the scope of eternity and the unfolding of God's purposes, it oft speaks of a thousand years are like a day before the Lord and he sweeps them away, it says in the Psalms. Just a little while. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the earth. The point is this, no matter what you see, trust God. And remember also, when you come to Hebrews 11, by the time you're getting down towards the end of that hall of faith, all those faithful men, it says, 
all of these died in faith, not having received the promises. And you know, to a degree, some of us may die before we see the fulfillment of many things that we would so desire. But no matter what happens, no matter what's unfolding that might not fit with our human comprehension of what, what the world should look like if God's in control, don't buy in to that trust of our expectation. Humbly say, He's in control, and He's going to fulfill His purposes. Eventually, His people will inherit the earth, and eventually those oppressors will face the judgment. God will accomplish it. And it goes on and says, verse 13, they plot against Him in verse 12, gnash their teeth, verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. You know, those who actually think that somehow they've succeeded, even some of them might think if they've reached a ripe old age and they've enjoyed all of the seeming worldly pleasures to the extreme and abundance, they might think, ha ha, I never believed in God. Ha, I never turned from my sin. But you know what? I still led an amazing life. Only upon the breathing of their last breath to realize everything was in vain. And like that rich man and Lazarus will find himself in Hades, in torment, desperate that he might just have a drop of water to touch his tongue. And I say that not in spite. I say that with a heavy sense of, uh, of reality. Second, on page five, uh, in, in terms of these uh, uh, confused annoyances or, or the challenging of God, he, challenged, he first of all challenges his will by human comprehension, then he kind of challenges his word by his character. Well, I know you've said this, but I don't think you can do that because my perspective is you are holy, and holy can't do that. Well... Yeah, God's word is never going to be contrary to his character, even if you and I can't put it together. And here he says it like this. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look upon wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up a man more righteous than he? No, th things are about to go from the bad that I was decrying to you to even worse by your plan, and <laughs> you can't do that because you are holy and you are pure, and so there, there ain't no way holy pure is going to make use of wicked impure. So that's not going to happen. Which is the same kind of thing that maybe you'll hear and has been said from time to time. God is love. And can you imagine a loving God taking people who have sinned for maybe 20 years, 25 years, 40 years, 90 years, oh, that many years, and then for that many years, sending them 
to eternal torment day and night forever and ever. Does that sound loving to you? People will say that. And, then, and, and, and we start to say to ourselves, well, actually, that doesn't sound loving to me. And God is loving, right? Yes, God is loving. So therefore, we can cancel that crazy idea that there really is hell in a lake of fire, right? We can't cancel it. Because the very same book, the very same scriptures that tell us God is love, is also the scriptures that tell us about his wrath, his judgment, the lake of fire, the nature of it. Everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. So who are we to get in there and say, you know, I like it at this verse. I'm going to make this verse cancel out all the ones I don't like. Again, it goes back to if our description and understanding of love seems to be contrary to other clear things the word teaches, you just bear with that tension. Because again, it, for those of us who have studied it, it in 1 John, before it ever even got over to the place where it said God is love, it actually said God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then it speaks about those who do not walk in the light, do not have fellowship with him. So there is, a, there is discussion of his purity, holiness, and a separation from him without extreme detail before it even gets to speaking about God is love in the book of 1 John, doesn't it? But the, the scriptures also say that our God is a consuming fire. I'm pretty sure that that does not get as much airplay as God is love, <laughs> Right? Or that God is a jealous God, a wrathful God, an avenging God. There's one section in the Psalms that says, our God is a man of war. Huh. Which is why you live in an age where, where, where there are churches that even start to say, well, in the Old Testament, you know, God was having a hard go of it. Like, it's, that's kind of the bad mood season. Uh, you know, uh, the God of the Old Testament was kind of mean and brutal and vindictive. Thankfully, we live in the days of the New Testament where it's grace and love, grace and love. Well, uh, I am the Lord. I change not. <laughs> he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us not presume upon the kindness of our God. It will not go well with us. Psalm 5, 4 to, 5, 4 to 6 says this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Sometimes I feel like some churches' Bibles are missing Psalm 5. You know, or they wish they had a black uh, sharpie to cover up some of those words and verses because it's a harsh, stark warning to the wicked. Psalm 34, verse 15 and following says, The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and His ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil 
to cut off their memory from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Now, I will tell you this. Believers have had broken bones. That's why we have believing orthopedic surgeons for that very purpose. But listen, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken is a wonderful allusion to another of great significance who when he was on the cross and they went out and they broke the legs of the man on the left side and they broke the legs of the man on the right side. When they came to him, he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs but thrust a spear in his side. But this fulfilled what was spoken in the scriptures that not one of his bones shall be broken. And so uh, caught up in all this for the believer looking back in the midst of, of uncertainty, we have this confidence because of Christ, God is going to fulfill all of his purposes for the righteous and for the wicked, for those that he has reconciled to himself out of enmity and made us his own people and family and allies and against those who are his enemies and hostile. We can go, or actually we can't. Time will not permit. I'm going to encourage you on your own with your families to take up and, and read Psalm 10 and read Psalm 73 and how they apply to the way that we think and the way we wrestle with circumstances and the confidence that we have in God, even when things seem different to us. But look, before we get too strong against Habakkuk, I want us to remember, not only did Habakkuk do this, not only did Job do this, we see Jeremiah does the same kind of thing. Righteous are you, Jeremiah 12, 1 through 4. O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? You plant them, they take root, they grow, produce fruit. All of these things, I don't understand it. And then it ends there at the beginning of verse 4. It says, how long? I don't get it. And, he, and here's the answer to how long. As long as God has appointed. Are you good with that? The whole point is we have to be good with that because he's the one in control. What about to, then, then there's challenges to his wisdom because he's, he now speaks of the fact that ultimately, God, you are the one who has so strengthened this wicked king of the Chaldeans with all of his victories, with all of his devastation, with all, you are the one who has enabled him to, to grow and build to this point. At what point does it end? How far are you going to let it go? To, to which, to some extent, you say this to, to Habakkuk, as far as he's appointed. What's that to you? Be faithful. 
those doing the McShane readings, again, we finished up the uh, Gospel of John today, and that very same thing happens as, as Jesus has told uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Uh, uh, then they take a walk together, he and John shortly behind them, and, and he tells them, when you're young, you dress yourself, you do all these things, but when you're old, people are going to lead you away and stretch out your hands for you. And it says, he told him this indicating by what means his death would bring glory to God. And so he's just told him, well, for one thing, he's just told him he's going to die at an old age. Didn't give him an exact year, but he knows he's, he's pretty impervious for a few years to come, which interesting. But now, that doesn't mean he's not susceptible to pain and affliction and agony, you know, and loss of a limb here and there. So, okay. But, well, I, okay, so I know I'm ultimately going to die for the gospel. And then he says, what about him? And what, is, what was Jesus' answer? If it's my will that he lives until I come again, if I want him to live for thousands of years, we now know, then uh, what's that to you? Follow me. And so, so much time we spend trying to figure out, well, how long? It's appointed until when? When is this going to change? When is this going to be fixed? When is my prayer going to be answered? When is this? When? Look, stop with all the winds. Trust his wise timing and ask yourself rather than when, what? What would have me do? He have me do. Because the days are evil, how do I redeem the time? Because the days are short, how do I make the most of them? What would he have me do? I know it's a lot easier for us to wallow. How long? When? Oh, wrong. Mm. That's a lot easier than saying, God, what would you have me do? And then being bold to get out and speak to people, generous to show love to people, restrained in our responses to people. Those are a lot harder to do. And so we want to join the how long bandwagon. Then he challenges God's wisdom in, in that way, saying you made all, all these things and you brought it all about. And when is it going to end? That's a, he basically says at the end of verse 17. Is he then to keep emptying his net, mercilessly killing nations forever? I don't understand, God. I don't know. When's it going to end? And then the audacity to think that even God has to answer him. The, the sense that he says here, look at what it says in Habakkuk 2.1. I will take my stand at the, the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he says to me. My wisdom, my arguments of his, his holy character, <laughs> ain't no way you can do it now. There ain't no way... You're right and I'm wrong. All right? Answer that. Really, Habakkuk? Answer that? I'm going to stand there and he needs to answer me because I don't think he's in the right to do like this. It's not consistent with his character. It's not appropriate to my judgment. I'm going to stand here and he needs to explain this. He needs to fix this. Basically, yeah, I give a, a paraphrase there. My questions, 
challenges and arguments are indisputable, irrefutable, and undeniable, go ahead and answer me if you can, because you can't. Well, that is a lot of hubris when there should always be humility. Job, at the end of his tragic experience, says what? What Habakkuk will learn as well. Behold, I am of small account. What will I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I thought I was big stuff. I thought I was wise stuff. I thought I was smart stuff. I am just small stuff. Small fry. I put my hand on my mouth. I spoke once and I will not, a not answer. Twice, but no further. I'm done. I'm shutting up. Then in... in 42, he says, God, to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. When all is said and done, you know what the humble man says? I don't know what I'm talking about. But whatever God says and whatever God does is right. And he is my God, and I will follow him, and I will trust in him. And then God comes, and I, I just be, give the beginning of God's answer in perfect closing timing. And God's answer, I, I, I codify simply this way. His answer to him is, my word, my way, my timing on my watch. I'm standing at the watchtower. All right, you have a look, my friend. My way, my word, he says to him this. Instead of, instead of getting into a debate, what would be the point? The scriptures will even say in the Proverbs, it is not useful for a wise man to dispute with a fool. Let me say this. The wisdom of men is foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. God doesn't come and dispute with Habakkuk. He simply tells him this. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. Again, the putting it on tablets, that, that's, not, that's not a writing that's going to smear in any kind. It's not a writing, that, writing that's going to be washed off as a result of parchment or leather getting into some sort of river. What he's saying is, look, it makes no sense to you, and you don't like it, but this is happening. <laughs> write it down, write it on tablets. This is fixed. This is sure. My word, it's happening. And then he tells him, secondly, my way. In other words, he says, so that, so he may run who reads it. All right, so that those who hear it will know, that there, there are two senses, that they can run and declare it to others, or that they can take up and they can run because the warning has been issued to them. But the fact is this, listen, I'm doing it. You've got to explain to me how it fits your holiness. You've got you to explain to me how I can understand that you're a loving God, but you're going to do this to your people. You've got to explain to me how you would use those tools, the wicked Chaldeans, as an instrument of your judgment. You, you, yeah, you've you got to justify yourself to me. 
And God just says, just write it down. Because this is what I'm doing. Wait. Don't you feel like you got to justify yourself to me? Don't you got to explain it to me? Just write it down. <laughs> okay. And then it, it ends by, in chapter 2, verse 3, saying, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. So look, just because it doesn't happen tomorrow or next week, don't think you talked me out of it. All right? It is in its appointed time. In the end of everything, I'm doing my will. And I make it known in my word. And I do it my way. I do it on my watch or my timing. Boy, that's a teachable thing, isn't it? Because it's kind of curious in the day in which we live, how they keep coming up with, well, we want to we wanna get back to work here, and then maybe we can open things up by Easter, and then the next day they're extending things until the end of April. And it's like, okay, men are clearly not good at appointing times. <laughs> or they appoint times, and then those times become movable and unsure because there are factors that are beyond their control. It's on the basis of projections and models made by men that have variance. God doesn't need models made by men. Doesn't need projections and statistics. God is working out his oft-perplexing and mysterious purpose everywhere, every place, every day. And if we want to understand more about his purposes and more about his will and more about what he would have us do and how he would have us think, brothers and sisters, there is only one place, his word. And we don't pass judgment on that. When it goes beyond searching, we humbly say, wow, amen. When, when we look around and, and it gets darker and darker and heavier and heavier, we don't doubt. We simply wait on the Lord because we know that he has appointed the times for everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we again could come together this evening. Even on the eve where they will impose some sort of shelter in place here in Marshall. And we don't know what that will mean in the days ahead for us. Our hope is that it would not be pressed upon churches as well. But Lord, we look to you. We ask for sustaining grace. We ask for mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you um, for even the way that you are using the various modern means to uh, uh, continue to teach and train the saints, to continue to some degree to keep in communication uh, your people. God, we thank you that, uh, that no matter what form of isolation anyone could have upon us, nothing can separate us from you, that you are with us always even until the end of the age. And so we are thankful, God, for that sure promise. And we know that that promise abides even when we don't sense or feel it. You are with us. Lord, help us to rest confident that your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen.